Good morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn them open to 1 Corinthians. Frank, you didn't steal my thunder, mate. You just preach it, brother. Good job. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 10 uh, shortly. But when we do, I, I don't want you to lose sight of Paul's um, affections for his dear friends who are in Corinth. I say that because it's easy to do that, because from verse 10, um, well, verse 10 really marks the turning point in this letter. We're only, you know, we've only done nine verses into chapter one. We've got 16 chapters in this book to deal with. Paul has already started to turn his head towards correction. And it's going to set the trajectory for the next 16 chapters, but but we can't lose sight of the fact that Paul loves this church dearly. His primary concern, the thing that he wants to deal with the most, is that the the church in Corinth, the people who make up this church, the Corinthians, he wants them to find their identity and their security and their confidence in the glorious realities of the gospel. I think if you were here last week or if you watched it online maybe, it's why Paul started with this very surprising encouragement. The Corinthians, they didn't need anything else apart from the grace of Jesus to set them on their feet, all right? They didn't need superior gifting. They didn't need superior experiences. And they certainly didn't need superior association with well-known preachers. And that's, that's the one that Paul's going to turn his attention to now in this passage. It's this last sort of false identity that Paul turns to. So let's read together. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. We're just going to read through the passage that we want to focus our attention on today. Chapter 1, starting from verse 10. We're just going to read down to verse 17. Read along in your Bibles the best that you can or follow on the screen if you need to. It says this, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no division among you and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says... I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul sacrificed for you? Or were you baptized into Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say, you were baptized in my name. I 
did, in fact, baptise the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It stands eternal. It brings life. It convicts of sin, turns us to truth, enlightens us to Christ. And we want all of those things this morning. So Holy Spirit, take the word of God and do its work in our hearts that we require. We need your help, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, those seven verses that we just read out really are just an introduction to a much um, bigger argument that Paul is going to give over the next, really, probably four chapters. But, but really, he's introducing now this argument, a reason for why the Corinthians seem to have engaged in such foolishness but I hope that at least today we're going to get a good foundation, a good start on where this is going and a bit of a picture for what Paul is wanting from the church in Corinth. And because this is a letter that, remember, he said this is for all Christians everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus, this is something that we need to take on board as well. All right. The first thing we need to do is get clear, I think, what Paul wants from us from this text. So he's about to correct some sort of faulty Christian living, some type of uh, false gospel application. But we, we need to understand what it is that he wants from us. I mean, he's going to correct what's wrong with that sort of culture that's happening in that church there and can happen in any church. But what is it that he wants? What is a healthy gospel culture? What should we be doing? So I want you just to focus your attention on just one verse, just verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And if you wanted to write a little note in a notebook or something, I would sort of head this up. What is Paul urging us to do? He uses that sort of language, okay? Verse 10, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Okay, what is he urging us? What is he exhorting us or, or wanting from us now? That all of you agree in what you say, that there be no division among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. I think it seems pretty straightforward to grasp what Paul's driving at here, right? He wants the entire church in Corinth, men and women... To pursue unity. Right? That's what he wants, isn't it? And not just because he knows that living in unity is a pleasant experience, which it is. There are Psalms about that, right? How beautiful it is for God's people to live in unity together. Um, it's nice to be in unity. I, I'm a person who doesn't like conflict very much. I'm not sure... It, I meet some people and they seem to thrive on conflict. Like there's some sort of thing going on and they're like, yeah, they come to life, let's bring it on, right? I'm not like that. I don't like conflict very much. And so when people are in unity, it's pleasant. I love it, all right? It's nice. 
It's interesting here, though, he doesn't say for your sake, though. He states that the unity he's talking about is for the sake of Christ. There is something about gospel-shaped unity, as pleasant as it might be for us, that actually benefits Jesus. Jesus looks good when his followers live well together. Did you notice the three things that he specifically asks for? That all of you agree in what you say. How's that going? Second one, that there be no division among you at all. I don't know about you, I've got two out of two so far. Number three, that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Now, I'm not sure about you, but at first glance, I'm pretty sure that I have never heard of a group of Christians anywhere or at any point in time who can attain to this level of Christian unity. Right? All of you agree in what you say, no division, and everyone have exactly the same conviction and the same understanding about everything. I'd hazard a guess that if you ever did come across a community of people like that, always agreeing, never divided, completely the same in their understanding conviction, you'd be tempted to think, this is a cult, right? What a bunch of weirdos. What's going on here? So let me go out on a limb here and say that I don't think Paul means what you think he means. In fact, elsewhere in his letters, Paul seems to champion the, champion the idea of diversity and different roles and different functions and different gifts and different focus. At least on one occasion in Paul's own ministry, he has a different focus and approach to some of his team members and they come to the agreeance through disagreeance that maybe it's best just to go different directions and keep focusing on what God's called them to do. He even says later in the same letter that we're reading now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 17, Paul says to the church now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. He's going to give some hard words about how people are meeting together for communion when we get to chapter 11. In giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. He says, for, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. And then he says this, indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So I gather from this that Paul has a certain type of division that he doesn't want to see happen. An unhealthy way that Christians can be different from each other, rather than a completely natural and even a good way that Christians can display differences. Paul is urging Christians to stand together on their identity in the gospel. He's asking them to agree on the gospel. 
to not be divided on central gospel issues, that our understanding and our conviction around the issue of the gospel be completely aligned. All right, it's the difference between unity and uniformity. One says, we must be together on this issue. That's unity. The other says, we must be the same on this issue. Well, that's uniformity. I think we've answered, at least in part, the question about what Paul doesn't mean by being like-minded. But now it's good to ask, well, then, what does he mean? And so I think, I think it's helpful that Paul goes where he does here because it really clarifies what's going on in his mind here. Paul gives us a very helpful situation that he is specifically addressing. So I think it's good for us to look a little bit closer at that. 1 Corinthians 11, down to verse 13. Let's refocus our attention back on the Word of God for a moment. What does those verses say? What is Paul saying? Verse 11, for it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people. I wonder how Chloe's people felt being called out by that. Um, it's been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. Now, that's a key word. If you're an underlining person, underline that, circle it. Rivalry, very important word in this passage. What I'm saying is this, he says, one of you says, I belong to Paul, another one says, I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised into Paul's name? Now, I think it's really important here to identify the key words that help connect this with what he's just urged us to do. Remember, he's just urged us towards gospel-centered unity, gospel-driven unity. And now he's contrasting that with, remember what I said was the key word there? Rivalry. So rather than a sense of unity, Paul's saying, I've seen, or it's been reported to me, that there's actually rivalry. All right? Factions, divisions, separations here. In verse 10, he challenged us to agree with each other, not be divided, be united in our understanding and conviction around the gospel. But verse 11 introduces the word rivalry. Look, it would appear that a number of different groups had emerged within the church in Corinth. Now, just remember, this is not some sort of um, academic book written to just sort of some sort of nebulous group of Christians at some point in time. This is an actual church. I wonder if they were very different to us when they got together. Different people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different cultures, different races, different strengths, different experiences. I don't think they would have been too dissimilar to us. And yet, emerging in this church were these different groups. And not only were these groups defining themselves as being different from each other, they were actually combative with each other. That's what being rivals means. Competing with each other. Think of the times that you might use the word rival 
You know, if you're in a sporting context, for those of you who play, you know, I know a few of you play, still play a bit of soccer or a bit of sport of some sort, you, know, you have your team together, you go out on a Saturday or whatever time your game is and you meet your rival. Right? You're competing for the win. There are other places that we um, meet rivals. You might do it in an academic sense. Maybe your goal is to top of the class. I want to be the best at what I do academically. Great goal to have. But there's that kid who, man, he always seems to get that mark. How come he gets that better mark than me? You know, then I studied hard. He's a, he's a rival in one sense. There are other places that you can have rivals in life. Rivals socially, rivals for the best lawn on your street, the best car parked in your car park, the best family. What sort of rivals do you have? Well, here's a group of people, they're rivaling against each other, fighting against each other. And they're within the church. Paul's heard about this internal, unhealthy competitiveness, this rivalry, and he writes to urge them towards a gospel cohesion, right? A sense of being connected together, a togetherness that reflects the gospel more accurately. And what was this rivalry based on? What translation they read? Maybe. I doubt it. Ultimately, this rivalry was based on misplaced identity. Misplaced identity. The church in Corinth had somehow concluded that aligning themselves with certain high-profile preachers or high-profile church planters or high-profile leaders would advance their standing as Christians. Remember one of the unifying themes that comes through this letter, this entire letter, 16 chapters of it, is Paul correcting misapplications of the gospel as it relates to our identity. Paul spends a lot of time in this letter correcting misapplied identity, Christian identity. Some Christians in Corinth believed that if they elevated and gathered around Paul as their champion, Paul as their guy, right? Paul is their preacher, their church planter, their church leader. We're Paul people, right? They, they had started to believe that if they did that, then all the good things about Paul that they admired would somehow also apply to them. Well, if I'm Paul's guy, that makes me a better guy, right? There's a group of Christians in Corinth who are doing that. Now, there's some other people who looked at them and they went, oh, Paul's all right. Like, he's pretty good. I really liked that sermon that he gave last year when he was passing through. Like, that was good, I, I admit. But have you heard Apollos? All right? You might not know about Apollos very much. If you've read through the book of Acts, you, you bump into him. Apollos was probably the first celebrity preacher in the first century. Everywhere that Apollos went... Man, that guy could talk. 
people, and not just the amount of words that came out of his mouth, but he was easy to listen to. Like crowds came, they were just like, wow, Apollos, man, the best preacher I've ever heard. If Apollos lived today, he'd be on number one on the podcast ranking sites, right? Everyone would be like, have you listened to Apollos' last episode on his podcast? Man, he killed it. It was so awesome. (laughs) And so there were guys who were, and girls, they were doing that with Apollos. He's a very high profile, very popular preacher in the first century. There were another group, they were just going, oh, yeah, look, Paul's good, Apollos, no doubt about it, great preacher, but you can't get better than Peter. That's Cephas, that, that's the official word for Peter, right? You can't get better than Peter. Like, when Jesus was here and when Jesus was doing his miracles, where was Paul? Where was Apollos? I'll tell you where Peter was. Peter was jumping out the boat and walking out in the water. All right? And the other guys are going, yeah, but you remember that whole thing about the rooster? Yeah. (laughs) Peter's the man. Peter's been there from the beginning. Peter walked with Jesus. Of course he's better. Peter is like the Pope or something. I don't know. Peter is like the guy that runs the big church in Jerusalem. Of course, Peter's the best. And then there was this little group up the back. They'd been staying quiet. They were just letting these other people dig the hole. And then as soon as everyone had put their cards on the table, they pull out the trump card and they just go, we're of Christ. (laughs) Boom. Mic drop. All right? You can have your Paul, you can have your Apollos, you can have your Peter. We're of Christ. You can't beat that. All right, that's the trump card. What's going on here? Especially with that group of people who are saying we're of Christ. Because you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't it good to say that I identify with Jesus? Isn't it a good thing for us to say, I'm of Christ? After all, isn't that what Christian means? Christ follower? Well, the answer to part of that is yes, right? We should identify with Christ. We should be putting our hands up as people here, out in the world, in your workplace, in your school. I'm of Christ. That's good. But look closely at what the real problem is here. Remember the key word? Rivalry. There is rivalry among you. He says, for some of you are saying this and some of this and some of that and some of that. Here's the point. Even identifying with Jesus can become a problem if Jesus only exists to prop up my superiority. If Jesus is nothing more to you than ammunition to use in shooting down people, then my Christianity more resembles one of those last man standing type video games. And that's a huge problem. Let's make sure we are clear on the central issue here. Paul is addressing a problem of misplaced identity that leads to rivalry among Christians. So how does he correct this problem? Well, that's easy. 
He points them back to the gospel. Read it, verse 13. Here's the question that he says. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into Paul's name? You could, you could put down there Apollos' name, Peter's name. He points people back to the centrality of the gospel. This is who Jesus is and this is our identity in him. Now, verse 14 onwards is just Paul clarifying that even though he did baptize a few people in Corinth, he's grateful that it wasn't his priority because he didn't want people using their baptism as a way of getting up and and putting somebody else down. You know the sorts of conversations that might have happened? You know, they're greeting each other after church with their coffee and biscuits, cup of tea. They're saying, oh, are you baptised? Oh, yeah, I'm baptised. I'm following after Jesus. It's so wonderful. Oh, good. Who baptised you? And they go, oh, Peter baptised me. Oh, that's sweet. Paul baptised me, you know. And Paul's saying, gee, I'm glad I didn't baptise many of you because I don't want you to think, wow, Paul baptised me. I'm such a wonderful Christian because of who baptised me. In essence, Paul is saying, who cares who baptised you? It doesn't matter one bit who it was that pushed you under the water and pulled you back up again. It doesn't matter one bit who your favourite preacher is or what popular author you agree with. None of those things matter at all. Your identity as a Christian isn't altered one degree by any of those associations. All that matters is Jesus. All that matters is the good news about grace. All that matters is the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. It made me wonder, who are the people today that I'm tempted to find my identity in apart from Christ? And maybe that's a question you should ask yourself as well. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, if you've been walking as a Christian for some time, then ask yourself this. Who are the people today that I'm tempted to find my identity in apart from Jesus? Because there is no shortage of famous Christians around. Preachers, pastors, authors, singers, songwriters, publishing labels. The the era of the internet, and in particular, I think the post-COVID era of every man and his dog having a YouTube channel, It doesn't make this any easier. Never before in the history of the church have we had so many online options to tune into our go-to guy. And this is the golden age of publishing as well. I've got a friend in the States who he works in the publishing industry and he said to me, he said, there have never been so many, and even good, Christian books published in the last few years than there has been at any other point in time in Christian publishing. There are 
thousands of Christian blogs that you can subscribe to. Dozens of big online ministries who tell us who to read, who to listen to, and which church is trustworthy. New words have crept into the Christian vocabulary over the last decade or so. Phrases like celebrity pastors and Christian tribalism. They're now used frequently in wider Christian conversations. The reality is we are under siege to find our identity in a thousand other places apart from Jesus. We are under constant temptation to find our identity in someone apart from Christ. And then use that identity to feel better about ourselves by proving that our identity is better than yours. That should never, ever be said of us. And I pray that it can't be, and I pray that it won't. Read verse 10 again. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say about the gospel and about your identity that there be no divisions among you about the gospel and about the identity that it brings you and that you be united with the same understanding of the gospel and the identity that we have in Jesus and the same conviction about the gospel and the identity that it gives us in Jesus. Now, we are going to explore this a little bit more next week, but I wanted to mention it here as a way of sort of closing off this week and preparing your minds for... Next, a little bit. But our natural way of thinking when it comes to anything being superior, so identities or you know, a product that you use or the translation that you like to read or whatever it might be, when it comes to anything being superior, our way of thinking is that if we can prove something is better, you know, really convince someone with how we explain it, or really convince someone by showing them how faulty their thinking is, or their product is, or their belief is, or whatever it might be, if we can do that, then that will prove why people should believe us, or why people should be like us, right? We use this thinking in just about every sphere of life, not just spiritual things. But I want you to notice what Paul says here, after he finishes sort of rambling a little bit about who he baptised. Oh, and that's right, I baptised that guy. And then he goes, oh, I don't really remember who else I baptised, but not many. Get down to verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Here it is, remember? This is his central concern. The good news of grace that's found in Christ alone. The identity that we have in him. Paul says, I didn't get sent here to baptise. I, I got sent here to preach the gospel. And then he adds this. Not with eloquent wisdom. So that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its power. Proving that I'm better than someone else 
or that what I believe is better than what somebody else believes by using sort of superior arguments or proofs. Paul says it's actually harmful to the power of the message of grace. Paul says that the real power of the cross doesn't rest on the eloquence of my wisdom. But it rests on the simplicity of the gospel. Look, sure, people will believe our message if we can tear down their arguments, maybe, and then prove to them why believing in Jesus is better. So if we meet someone and we say, you know what? Don't live like that. Don't believe those things. That's going to get you nowhere. I'm going to tell you all about why you should follow Jesus. And then I give them all the eloquent and well thought out reasons. And I convince them, right? People will believe it. And we can train ourselves even with all the best arguments, all the best comebacks, all the best counter-questions even, but people will believe those things only while they seem to make sense to them. And as soon as their world collapses or another worldview enters their life that seems to make sense as well, man, they'll drop Christianity like a kid drops a present on Christmas Day once the next one gets unwrapped. If we try to outsmart people into the kingdom, Paul says that the cross of Christ will be emptied of its power. Our identity as Christians isn't based on superior arguments or superior logic or superior identities of anyone else. Our identity is formed only by the gospel, only by who Jesus says you are. And in Jesus... Known or unknown, nameless or famous, guess what? You're enough. Because he's enough. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Let's ask Jesus for help. Lord, thank you so much for your word for us. Lord, we confess so often we try to find our identity in other places, other people, other things. We lose sight of you, and as Matt even encourages us more, this morning, we so often let the, the things of this world become so important to us and we lose sight of eternity, of the things that matter most. So Lord, refresh our hearts, we pray. Give us a, a renewed vision of Jesus that fills our affections and our love. And we want to find our identity in you, Jesus. We want to look like you. Not to be better than anybody else. Not to make ourselves feel better, but... Just because you, you're amazing. You saved us. Your grace is incredible. So Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to take this seriously. To stand with each other in unity around the gospel. Encouraging one another. Spurring one another on. Not 
competing with each other, not rivals, but together in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.